Good morning. Good morning. to move some furniture around here just a little bit. Sorry about that. Hey, I um, want to welcome you today. Thank you for those who are here with us. Thank you for those who are joining us online. And I want to wish you all a very happy Thanksgiving. I know we don't celebrate it until this coming Thursday, but want to wish you happy Thanksgiving just as well. I pray that God will bless you this week as you gather together with your friends and your family. And even if you can't gather together, I pray God's blessings over you. Um, I pray also that a heart of thanksgiving will continue to grow in each one of us, particularly this time of year as we look back and we remember all that what the Lord has done for us. Just like that song said, he's done so much for us and we have so much to be thankful for. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, I debated on uh, whether to do a <clears throat> standalone Thanksgiving message today, but I decided to continue and to complete our series that we've been doing called Short Truths. In this series, we've been... Uh, covering, well, this will be the fourth, the four of the shortest Bibles, or books in the Bible, excuse me, and where we learn some important truths that, were, that are as important today as they were when they were written some 2,000 years ago. And so today we're going to look at the book of Jude, and in preparation, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along with us. We will have the scriptures up on the screen behind me. But while you're doing that, I'd like to start this message with a word that we don't often use. Though it has been around for, for many generations, this particular word is unfamiliar to most of us. It's not a word that you will generally hear in an ordinary conversation, and some of us may have not even heard of it or, or, or know what it, the word is about at all. It's an ugly, uh, ominous-sounding word called apostate. It is a noun that describes a particular kind of a person. And before I give you the, the definition from the dictionary, let me tell you that the Greek word literally means to fall away from. In the New Testament, it's a word that refers to a person who knows the truth and deliberately falls away from it. An apostate knows the truth and yet intentionally embraces a falsehood. That's why the dictionary defines an apostate as a person who has rejected the tenets of the religion he once claimed to believe. In biblical terms, an apostate is anyone who claims to be a Christian and yet denies the fun fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And the New Testament contains many warnings about apostates and the dangers that they oppose to us, that they pose to us. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of wolves in sheep's clothing in Matthew 7:15, And then many years later, the Apostle Paul took that same theme or image when he warned the elders in the church in Ephesus that after his departure, he said that false teachers would come in like ravenous wolves, devouring the flock of God. And you can find that in the book of Acts chapter 20. And as we've seen in our, our recent sermons, the Apostle John said that there are many deceivers who have gone out into the world. He further stated in 2 John 7, such people are the very spirit of the Antichrist. In fact, there are so many warnings in the New Testament regarding apostates that one of two conclusions must be reached. Either the early Christians were a very naive bunch of people or the false teachers must have been very, very clever. While no doubt there are always naive believers who are easily deceived, I believe the greatest problem has always been the cunning devices that wicked men and women have used in order to not just mislead and deceive God's people, but continue to deceive those who are lost. And please understand that there aren't just apostates in the Christian faith. There are also what I would call moral apostates, people who know what is morally correct and yet they have chosen to live immoral lives, but they don't just choose to live immoral lives, they do everything that they can to promote immorality in and among our culture. So the message from the Holy Spirit today is very, very clear. Be on your guard, keep your eyes open, watch lest you too be led astray, and be ready to contend for the faith. No one said this more forcefully than Jude, and his message is desperately needed today. And it is most appropriate, I believe, for us who are living in the state of California, in the United States of America, in the year 2020. Because apostasy is running roughshod over everything. So what can we say about this little book of Jude? Well, here are some adjectives. It is short, 
it is powerful, it is uh, colorful, it is direct, and it is piercing as well as penetrating. In only 25 verses, Jude dissects the actions of the apostates. He reveals their character, their doctrine, their moral error, and their ultimate destiny. And although he pulls no punches, understand Jude is not some man man that's on a rant right now. He writes this with deep concern, deep compassion for not just the people of God, but for those who yet are yet to know God or understand his ways. In a handful of verses, Jude paints a vivid picture of what the, of all the apostates that surround us. And then he gives us a strategy for victory. So let's read this book of Jude together. We're gonna read the entire chapter. Should be up on the screen behind me or you can follow along in your Bible. Begins in verse one, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Christ Jesus, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for his slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words godly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others with their own advantage. But dear friends, remember that the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold, they said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. There are the people, these are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by calling, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and prayer in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, 
majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Jude starts his letter by telling us what he intended to write, but it's not what he ended up writing. He evidently intended to write a pastoral letter of encouragement, but he felt the spiritual danger was so great that he had to change his mind. And you'll find the whole theme of his letter to be found in one phrase when he writes this, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. You see, in the word of God, every word matters. To contend means literally to go to war. It's a fighting word. The phrase, the the faith, refers to Christianity. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel message, the, the truth that all believers hold in common. It includes inspiration from the Bible, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his death and resurrection, his ascension into heaven, his second coming to the earth. That phrase, the faith, also includes the doctrine of salvation, the Holy Spirit, prayer, godly living, and the moral teachings found in God's word, teachings found in God's word. In short, the faith is what we as Christians believe. But notice something else. The faith has been entrusted to God's holy people. This carries the idea of making a deposit into a person's account. God has said to this generation, I'm going to give you the truth. It's my truth. Can I trust you with it to take care of it and to pass it along to, your ne- to the next generation? You know, I remember once hearing a pastor say that God has no grandchildren. And what he meant by that is that there are no guarantees that your grandchildren will share in the same faith because Christianity is always but one generation away from extinction. So if you and I do not protect the truth, if we refuse to contend for the faith, if we don't fight for what is right, we will have nothing left to pass on to our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren. I have a friend who uses the term a whole lot when he pretends that you've offended him. He says, them's fighting words. You've probably heard that before. Well, we all know that there are certain things that are fighting words, meaning there are some things that you and I care deeply about. I I also hear men say, you know, you can mess with me, you can mess with, but don't mess with my wife or my children. I've said that myself. You can mess with me all you want, but don't mess with my family. Well, that's fair enough. That's a fair enough statement, I think, for a man to make. But is there anything, as a Christian, that you will fight and die for? Have you ever asked yourself that? Sometimes Christians need to determine if we have become so used to sin around us and compromise that anything goes and that that nothing makes us angry anymore. You see, there are times when we've got to rise up and, as, as Jude wrote, contend for the faith, lest we lose it altogether. This is a command of Almighty God that we cannot look over, we cannot ignore. There are some truths that are worth fighting for. There are some things that are so evil that they must be opposed and we must stand up against, even at the risk of being scorned, even at the risk of being shut down, even at the risk of losing friends. And so Jude tells us in verse 4 how to spot the apostates. He says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. This passage is important because it is extremely and incredibly specific. And you know something? Anytime you go to battle, anytime you go to war, you need a clear understanding of who your adversary is and how he operates. So Jude tells us four things about the apostates in this verse. Number one, they secretly slip in and they do their evil work. Number two, they do not know God. Number three, they deny that that Jesus Christ is their sovereign Lord. And number four, they use their religion as an excuse 
for immorality. And all of that leads me to a very important principle. While all sin is evil, some sins are clearly worse than others. I say that to remind you that Jesus reserved his harshest words, not for thieves and prostitutes and murderers. He reserved his harshest words for the hypocritical religious leaders of his day. It's one thing to prefer the darkness. It is something altogether to lead others into the, the, the pit of sin and debauchery with you. God will not hold guiltless any man or woman who in the name of religion leads other people astray. I want you to listen to these stinging words from Jesus in Matthew 18, 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Pretty forceful words, wouldn't you say? So with all that as a background, I want to talk a little bit about what is going on in the state of California and in our nation. In case you haven't noticed, we are moving in the wrong direction. It is becoming increasingly obvious, particularly in the state of California, that our leaders have absolutely no shame whatsoever. They seem determined to lead us into a gutter of moral depravity, our lawmakers. Laws are being passed on a regular basis regarding sexual preferences and gender identity with unprecedented protections for classified groups of people. Moral apostates are pushing more and more to make alternative sexual lifestyles, those that are condemned, not by me, but by God's word, to not just be considered normal, but through intense lobbying and using the state assembly to pass bills that force everyone to accept sexual immorality as normal. They are imposing mandatory sensitivity training, which is nothing short of indoctrination into alternative lifestyles, into our schools, into our universities, and soon it will be at a workplace near you. You can count on it, it's already happening. You're gonna to have to sit down and take some classes and watch some films if you live in the state of California. They've even passed legislation that has changed the severity of persecution regarding sex between an adult and an underage child. Now, if there is a 10-year or less difference between the adult and the child, or if somehow they can consider it consensual, the rules of prosecuting the offender have changed, if you can believe that. They're also trying to pass a bill that would criminalize the church for counseling people regarding their sexual identity. They call it conversion therapy. They say that we are not to sway a person's thinking in any way, saying that it is cruel. Therefore, if this law is passed, it will eliminate our only opportunity to tell someone about their true identity in Christ Jesus and how that they are loved beyond measure and how that they were created for a purpose that is way beyond what they can see at this time. The moral apostates among us have already mocked one of God's most important covenants, the marriage covenant. They have passed legislation changing God's command that marriage be between one man and one woman, and they have changed it into something that not only goes completely against God's word, but also against a moral standard that has been accepted as normal for centuries. And make no mistake about it, all of this has created a very, very slippery slope. And I believe that in our lifetime, we will see a further degradation of the marriage covenant in ways that we can't even fathom yet, and it will be a literal mockery of God's law. So the moral apostates among us don't stop at moving their agenda forward. Every year, more and more laws are being pushed through the California Assembly. You know, for decades, whenever the people of God got behind some kind of a legislation, here was what we heard constantly from our lawmakers. You can't legislate morality. And what is so blatantly corrupt about that statement is they have absolutely no problem at all legislating immorality, all in the name of inclusivity and tolerance. 
And I am here to tell you today that those the, though these things are becoming commonplace in California and other states, God will not put up with this forever. In fact, I believe that California is under the judgment of Almighty God. And if I am correct, and I believe that I am, then what are we doing living in a place like this? Well, that's a rhetorical question that I want to answer a little bit later on. But truthfully, it's one that I hear thrown around a lot lately by men and women of God. And I want to address that as well as some other things because I think it's important for us to have a proper perspective. First of all, in a general sense, the whole world is under judgment for sin and rebellion against God. That was part of God's punishment for Adam's sin. To use the words of 1 John 5, 19 from the Living Translation, it says the world around us is under the power and control of the evil one. And look at 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. All of this explains why in these last days perilous times will come when men and women increasingly turn away from God and they run after their own evil desires. So when I say California is under God's judgment, it's not as if, as if California is and Nevada isn't. Because we live in a sin-cursed world. Every part of this world is touched by sin and is under God's judgment. Secondly, America is also under God's judgment for her sin and her rebellion against God. You know, we often talk about America being the greatest place on earth. And it, and it certainly is a wonderful place to live, but who among us, I ask you, can feel good about the fact that 60 million babies have been aborted since Roe v. Wade in 1970? Do you realize that is more human life than we've lost in every war in our nation's history? When you add to that the rising tide of divorce and illegitimacy and fatherless homes and drug abuse and human trafficking, there are more slaves now in the world than ever before in history. When you look at the violence, you look at the anarchy that's going on, it's crazy. The Bible plainly tells us in Proverbs 14:34, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. I think we should paraphrase that verse to say this, living by God's standards makes a nation great, but disgrace comes to those who ignore God's truth. We as a nation have forgotten God. We have turned away from his word. As Billy Graham often said, if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Third, the state of California increasingly revels in its freedom by welcoming moral evil. In the name of tolerance, we have surrendered at every point to special interest groups whose end game is to make immorality acceptable while representing a very small minority of people. And our state legislator has protections against or protections for immorality and at the same time they're doing their best to silence the truth from people of God and from God's Word. In the name of diversity, we have changed our policies in public schools. In the name of open-mindedness, we publish stories praising immoral activities as if they are moral, while at the same time attacking and reviling those who, who stand on the Word of God, to those who speak the truth of the Word. And so in light of all of this, I want to get back to that question that I said was rhetorical that I asked before. Then why should we stay here? And again, I ask that because I've heard many people, many born-again Christians saying, I'm thinking about moving out of California. It's an epidemic. Well, I can think of several answers to the question, why should we stay? First and foremost, God has called us here. 
High Point Assembly has been here for four years shy of 100 years. So why leave now when things are just starting to get a little uncomfortable for us? You see, I believe that as blood-bought believers of Jesus Christ, we are to be salt and light to this world, just like it says in Matthew chapter 5. We are to be the salt of Red Bluff, and we are to be the light in this state called California. Salt has many uses. In the biblical times, it served as a preservative against decay. At this particular moment in history, God has allowed us to be salt and light for such a time as this. California is a better place because the people of God live here, and it would be a worse place if we were to cut and run. And if you do leave here, where will you go to be safe from these problems? Suppose you go to Nevada or North Dakota or Idaho, that's the big one, and buy one of those big houses that you'd have to pay more for here, where the taxes are lower. So what? You can run from those problems, but you can't hide forever. Those places have the same problems. They just may not be as magnified as much as they are in California. And furthermore, the media is going to follow you wherever you go, and all the propaganda is going to come at you just like it does today from all of the different movements who are attempting to overthrow morality and law and order within our nation. So you might as well stay here with the rest of us. Third, if Christians keep living here, who will be left to share the love of Christ with these people. That is really the bottom line. It might be easier to leave, but it is more biblical to stay and to contend for the faith and to do everything that we can to lead as many people to the cross of Jesus Christ as possible. It is best for us to stay and do our best to make this a better place to live. Let me share with you Jude's two-part strategy for spiritual survival in the day of apostasy. First, he says, keep growing in your Christian life. Look at verses 20 and 21. But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. This is easy to understand, isn't it? Ground yourself in God's word and keep on praying. Keep yourself in God's love by walking in obedience to his commandments. And finally, keep your eyes on the skies for the return of Jesus Christ. You know, I, I was thinking this week about the lyrics in an old hymn, the second verse specifically of that song that we sing at Easter, He Lives. And this, this is a word that when you listen to this, this is a song that when you listen to the words can uplift your spirit. It can refocus your heart, especially when we're thinking about this stuff. In all the world around me, I see his loving care. And though my heart grows weary, I will never despair. I know that he is leading through all of this stormy blast. But the day of his appearing will come at last. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. So I say to you, child of God, keep your chin up and keep your knees on the ground in prayer because that is the greatest tool in our arsenal against apostasy, which is our enemy. Now, if you look again at verses 22 and 23, Jude gives a second part of his strategy for spiritual survival when he writes this. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. These verses really describe three different groups of people. He calls the first those who doubt. That is those who have been influenced by these false teachers and moral degenerates of our time and yet they haven't been convinced yet. But their thinking has been clouded. He says, be merciful and be gentle with them. Reason with them, lead them back to the truth. The second group has fallen prey to the apostates and are in danger of slipping down into the fires of hell. In this case, radical action is needed. 
They must be snatched, he says, like a brand out of a burning fire. This text seems to suggest to me that gentle persuasion is just not going to be enough. The final group, in my opinion, it describes the leaders of the apostates, those who have given themselves over completely to false doctrine and moral perversion. And such men and women are so deeply confirmed in their sin that they are both angry and arrogant toward anyone who would dare to challenge their position. And that is really where a great deal of our world is today. Jude says, show mercy, but watch out or be careful, lest yourself be, lest yourself be contaminated by sin. That's what he's telling us. We are never to lower our standards or, frater- or fraternize, excuse me, with moral evil in order to do the work of evangelism. The danger here is that by you and I lowering our standards, we won't help the apostates. We will, in fact, be drugged down to their level. That simply means that in the days like today of moral decline, we ought to redouble our efforts to win those who are lost. So let me tell you why what is happening in the state of California is really actually exciting. I personally believe that we are living in the largest harvest field in all of America. There are so many lost people in this state, so many confused souls, so many people with hurting hearts that we will never run out of lost people to lead to Jesus Christ. Our opportunities to share Jesus with others has never been greater. People are asking questions today like they've never asked before, while many more are justifiably worried about the direction that California seems to be moving. And every question that is asked to you is an opportunity to point people back to the only source of infallible truth, and that is the Word of God, and to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth. So don't be discouraged. Don't allow your heart to be frightened. Instead, let every soldier of the cross prepare to do battle for the King of Kings. Let us contend for the faith. Let us begin to stand for the truth and to pray for each other and to walk in obedience to God's Word. And then let's go out and share the love of Christ with a world that desperately needs to hear it. These are incredibly exciting days to be alive. We are living in days like the first century. That's fantastic news. Why? Because the fastest growth in the Christian movement that ever took place took place in the first century. And so my prayer is, do it again, Lord. Do it again in Red Bluff, California. Do it again in the state of California. Do it again in the United States of America. Well, there's only one other thing to consider in this scripture that I read you, and it's the great benediction that is the end of Jude's letter. And this is really the thrust of my message today. Verses 24 and 25 give us a reason for our hope. First, there is the power of God when it says, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Second, there is the purpose of God, to present you before his glorious presence. And then thirdly, there is the promise of God without fault and with great joy. This is a message not just for us who already believe Jesus Christ, but also for the spiritual and the moral apostates in our world. If I read this scripture that says to contend for the faith, we must be careful to do as we've spoken about now, I think we've mentioned it every week over the last four weeks, to speak the truth in love. People who don't know Jesus are no different than you and I were before we knew Jesus. We were also blinded to the truth. We didn't feel that we had a need for a savior. Immorality seemed normal to us as well. And I know that we were all familiar with sin because we practiced it day in and day out. So when we look at the direction that our our state or our country is heading, we must always remember that those who are leading the charge against morality are not the enemy. Satan is our enemy, 
And he is doing his best to deceive as many people as he can with the time that he has left to blind them to the truth. And how many of you realize that if you believe a lie about yourself long enough, it becomes the truth to you? So we must pray for, and we must engage those in conversation who are blinded, where we speak the truth from God's Word. I often tell you that you've got to find time to break open your Bible and to study God's Word. Because here's what happens. When you study God's Word and you're in a conversation, a redemptive conversation with someone about God, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance those words of truth that you read once before. You'll be shocked at what will come out of your mouth that you remembered. If you don't read God's Word, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be providing your opinion an opinion never saved anybody ever before. So we also must share with them our love. We must be patient with them. We gotta look at those who are lost with compassion, not for what they stand for, but what they don't understand, what they have been blinded to. For the fact that if they don't find Jesus, they are gonna spend eternity away from God in eternal darkness. Jude clearly spells out what a relationship with Jesus offers everyone, and that includes both spiritual and the moral apostates among us. It says, to him who is able, again, to keep you from stumbling. He is the only one who can take away their blindness. He is the only one who can strengthen them and prevent them from falling back into a lifestyle of sin. Again, it says, to present you before his glorious presence. He will stand, Jesus will stand before the Father and he will say, this one is mine. They have been cleansed of all sin. My blood has covered it all. They are not guilty any longer. And it also says without fault and with great joy. They are sinless once they found Christ. They are blameless. They are without fault. And they can now stand before God the Father with great joy knowing that they have been set free. Let me tell you something, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter if you sin quietly or if you sin publicly for everybody to see to rub their nose in it. It doesn't matter what struggles you may have or the severity of the temptations that seem to control your thought life throughout the day. It doesn't matter what lies, you be, lies that you have begun to believe about yourself. I'm talking about those lies that Satan has planted deep in you that you believe is true. Jesus is the answer to all of this. And he loves everyone with the same kind of love. Whether you are a believer or a sinner, he loves us the same. His love is indescribable. His love is unconditional. And his love is all-encompassing. His desire for all of the people of the earth is that is just what any parent would have for their own child, to see you walk in truth, to see you walk free from the grips of sin. So contending for the faith is not just standing up with a voice opposing immorality. Contending for the faith happens one soul at a time. We must spread the love of Jesus to those who are lost. If we fail to do this, nothing will change in our society because real change only comes through a heart that has been transformed by the power of God. He can change any person, no matter what lifestyle they've chosen, no matter what kind of sin they're caught up into. He can change any person who submits their life and their will into his perfect and capable hands because he will mold them into something beautiful both spiritually and morally. Jesus is the answer. Well, then Jude closes his letter with these stirring words in verse 25. He says, To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. That takes in everything, past, present, and future. It covers the entire universe, and that includes the state of California. That is why we face 
the future without fear. So let the people of God rejoice. Let the people of God be encouraged. Our God is still in control. And he can keep you from falling during these evil days. He can present you in God's presence in heaven. He can wipe away the record of all of your sin and all of your faults. And this will all be done with great rejoicing. When we finally get to heaven, we or anybody who has turned their life over to Jesus are going to say, hallelujah. By God's grace, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Until then, as I said earlier, keep your chin up and keep your knees on the ground in prayer. Keep serving. Keep smiling. Keep encouraging. Keep praying. Keep sharing Christ and his love wherever you go. Anthony, will you come up and help me to close this down? You know, the purpose of this message today is not to simply remind you of the obvious decline of morality in our culture. I think you already know that. It is more importantly to show us how we as Christians need to respond. We cannot run around like people whose hair is on fire lamenting over everything. And I gotta tell you something. I've seen a lot of Christians like that of late. People are freaking out. And, and, and we're starting to act like game over. We're taking on an attitude that it's beyond us. May I remind you that you serve the creator of this universe and everything in it? He is fully aware and more aware of everything that's going on in this world than you are. You can't act like the game is over because it's not. Even when it appears on the surface like Satan is winning, you got to remember his fate has already been determined. He's doing the best he can with the time he's got left to wreak as much havoc in this world as possible. And he does so to make this place, this world, a worse place, but he also does so to try to discourage you, men and women of God. Men and women of God. He wants to discourage you. Because in your discouragement, while contending for the faith, what happens is we start to get angry. We start to get ugly. We can't talk about these things with love anymore. We do it with vehement hatred. Do you think that's gonna win somebody to Christ? It's not. And the reason I'm talking about this is because I've seen it. We can be a pretty ugly bunch of people. <laughs> I can be ugly. We can all be ugly and God doesn't want that from us. Yes, we stand up for the faith. Yes, we contend for it. But we do it with love in our heart. When we do, when we, when we lose our temper, when we get angry, when we talk about moving out of the state of California, we say there's no hope for the state of California. We become nothing more than like the apostates who scream at us and scream us down when we're trying to tell the truth about Jesus. Let me remind you of something this morning, church. You are on the winning team. And if you don't know that, you need to get in your Bible because we win at the end. All of your worry, all of your fear is unfounded. Yes, things will get worse before Jesus returns, but rather than dwell upon all the bad that you're seeing and hearing about and being inundated with on a daily basis through television and the internet, with your physical eyes, start focusing on what you know to be true that you see through your spiritual eyes. When you do, you will see that the view is exciting, that the view is beautiful. Contending for the faith doesn't necessarily mean that things will change with regards to laws or legislation. We don't need laws and legislation for things to change. God is powerful enough to change whatever he wants to change. Our contending may not change anyone's mind regarding where they stand on moral issues. And it certainly won't make you a hero in the eyes of many people who vehemently stand against you and God and the truth of God's word. But I will tell you what it will do for you. It will make you stronger in your faith. It will convince you even more why you serve the Lord. 
So rather than get discouraged about all the darkness that you see going around you, encourage yourself by speaking the truth of God's word to people who desperately need it with love in your heart and concern for their eternal soul. You become a voice for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You become a soul winner. So don't let the world shut you down for the things that you wanna say. Don't be intimidated that they're going to shut you down because they are standing on the wrong side. They are on the losing side. Remember that they are deceived. Nothing more, nothing less. And it is your job to bring them the truth that they need to hear. My prayer is that you will make this a part of your Christian journey. That people will not just hear the truth spoken by you, but they, that they will see the truth of God lived out in your lives every day so much that they will desire it for themselves and allow it to change their own lives before it's too late. But here's the truth. Our God is so gracious that the minute they do realize it and they cry out to our Heavenly Father, they will be saved. I want to ask you all to stand to your feet if you would, please. I want to pray for you this morning. But before I do, I just want to say if, if you're watching online or you're here in this building and you are not in a relationship with Jesus, you've never allowed him to have lordship over your life, you can do so today. The Bible says to be saved, what we call be saved, it's salvation. In order to receive that, you've got to believe and confess. You've just got to believe that Jesus is who he said he was, the son of God. He came to this earth, he walked a sinless life, and he died a horrific death on the cross, but he rose again. The blood that he shed atones for our sin. And all you need to do is to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin, to wipe it clean, and his blood will. And you can start a new way of life. You can start a new path. You have the ability to have a fresh start. The confession part is just saying all that in prayer. It's believing it in your heart, and it's speaking it in prayer to the Lord. And if you pray a prayer like that with sincerity in your heart, you will be saved. And you'll start down a new road. And we as a church would love to come alongside of you and to disciple you in your Christian faith. But I also want to talk to you who, or pray for you who are already saved. I want to pray, and I want you to pray, that God would give you the strength and the ability to quit focusing on everything that is wrong in our world and all the things that the apostates, both moral and spiritual, are doing to make immoral, immorality the norm in, the, in our country. And I want you to pray that you will actually begin to contend for the faith in these days, not tomorrow, in these days in which we are living. And ask the Lord with all sincerity what role that you might play in being an agent of change in this world for Christ Jesus. You can't change anybody. Only the Lord can. But you can be used by the Lord and watch as someone gets changed by his power. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, I thank you for this beautiful day you've given us. I thank you for the many who have come out to this service and the many that are watching online. And Lord, as always, I thank you for the truth in your word. Your word does not change. It is as relevant the day it was written as it is today in 2020, maybe even more so. And God, I thank you for reminding us that there are going to be apostates around us all the time. And yeah, they may be picking up speed and they may have lawmakers on their side, but we have the God of the universe on our side. And so God, I pray that you would lift up our spirits. I know there are a lot of Christians who are greatly down right now. You can see it in their countenance. You can see it in how they respond to questions that you ask them. That is not at all what you had in mind for us. We are to walk in victory. The reason we are able to walk in victory now is because we know the victory that is to come. We are victorious. We are on the winning team. Our job now is to make sure that we bring in more teammates. And so God, I pray that you would instill in each one of our hearts 
the desire, the passion to want to contend for the faith. The desire and the compassion to look at those who are lost, not as the enemy, but as a soul who, if, who if, is, if not saved, is going to spend eternity in hell. We should not want that for anyone. That should break our hearts. So God, break our heart for the things that break yours. Make us be aware of the brokenness around us and want to be a part of bringing them to you. Father, I pray for those who are here or watching who don't know you, that they would pray a simple prayer of forgiveness. Father, I believe in you. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. You've covered my sin, so I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Give me a fresh start. The Bible says if we pray that kind of a prayer with sincerity in our heart, that you will save us. You will cleanse us, Father, of all unrighteousness. I thank you for those who are praying that prayer right now. And I ask that you help us to help them in their Christian walk. And God, as we depart this place today, help us to be cognizant of the pain that's around us. Help us to understand that much of the ugliness that is being pushed at us is just pain. It's not that they hate us. They're in pain. People need love. People need help. People need direction to God. And we are the only ones who can do that. So, Father, help us to do what you've called us to do. Help us to become soul winners. Help us to be encouragers. Help us to bring light into dark situations. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and give us the strength to contend for the faith. And Father, until we meet together again, I pray that you will keep us safe, safe from COVID, safe from flu, safe from any other sickness or disease that might befall us. Keep us safe in our cars, in our workplace, until we gather together again and worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray for opportunities, Lord, for us to share our goodness with others so we can bring them like a burning brand in a fire out of the pit of fire and into into righteousness, into a relationship with you. And we ask these things in the precious and the holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today and have a happy Thanksgiving this week. Love you guys.